Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi, and welcome to episode 8 of From Page to Practice and the first episode of 2020. Today we are focusing on the book The Science of Learning by Bradley Bush and Edward Watson. Normally I'd give you a little summary of the book myself, but today's contributors do a fine job of that, so I won't waste any more time now. I'll hand you over to Bradley Bush, one of the authors, to tell us more. So Edward and I uh, wrote uh, The Science of Learning um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I think from my perspective, uh, I was just bored of guessing what I was meant to be doing when I was a teacher. I kind of always wanted to know what the answers to some big questions were. So like things like how much homework should I be set setting? What is the impact of mixed ability versus streaming teaching? Why are students forgetting stuff that I taught them a week ago? What are the best strategies to motivate bored students? You know, the kind of day-to-day issues that I think everyone in education comes across um, I just want to know the answer to them. And I think for me, the best answers out there are found in research. Now, I know we don't know all the answers. We can't say everything for sure. But I think research offers us guidelines or best bets as to what might work. And that was really the initial driving force. And then once we decided we were going to write a book around all this research, we wondered why anyone would perhaps read it. And we think the big problems that a lot in education face are um, that a lot of these journals, sometimes they're quite hard to find. Uh, they're quite hard to access. So if you don't have a subscription, um, they can be quite costly. Uh, a lot of them are written for other psychologists, so they're not always in the most accessible language. And so we just wanted to produce something that could give an overview or summarise the key findings from what we consider to be seminal or important studies um, that people could read if they're time poor, but very interested in becoming more evidence-based. And I guess the final factor for us really was there's just so many factors that combine as to why some students learn more efficiently and more effectively than others. And so we wanted to write the book in a way that if you wanted to be find out more about memory, there's sections and studies on that. If you want to look up motivation, if you want to look up what role parents can play or teacher behaviours and strategies and so there were just so many different components that we thought we could kind of piece them all together um, and write this sort of book. Uh, the book is mainly aimed um, at teachers um, who are practising the classroom. Uh, we know a lot of people who are involved in organising CPD and teaching and learning within their school um, have used this as a starting point for discussions and also um, SENCOs and teaching assistants, so really anyone involved um, in the education of of young people um, from both primary and secondary have have bought the book. Um, The key intention or the key takeaways we want uh, as a result of the book, I guess, would be um, just to spark a good discussion. 
Uh, we don't expect everyone to agree with every study that we've included. Uh, we don't expect people to adopt wholesale changes on the basis of just one study. But I think if it starts a discussion around what works or what might work or what's most helpful in each school's unique context and climate, um, and that'll hopefully be good because I think the more teachers are discussing and debating research and how to apply this research, um, the more the profession grows and develops as it becomes more uh, evidence-informed. Uh, um, the book itself is actually a essentially a continuation of our previous book, uh, which was called Release Your Inner Drive. And that was very much using some of the same studies, but aimed in a student format. So again, we know that um, encouraging students to read and not do other activities is one of the big challenges in education. So we wanted to provide a very student-friendly, kind of psychological-based self-help book for students. Whereas this one, The Science of Learning, is much more um, focused at teachers uh, and adults. Uh, and it's not about what they need to necessarily do themselves, but it's about the studies around what can they encourage their students to do and how do they create an environment uh, where learning can flourish. Uh, and what's amazing is our, our publisher, um, Routledge, have been really kind um, because it was important to us that we get good research out there because I think there's a lot of misconceptions in education. So what our publishers allowed us to do is put about 30% of the book um, online for free um, so you can download the studies and the resources. Um, and so if anyone's interested in sort of dipping their toe in the water um, before buying The Science of Learning, uh, if they head to our website which is www.innerdrive.co.uk. Uh, they should be able to find a whole bunch of free resources uh, on there because um, we could honestly talk about this stuff for days. And so we're just hoping that once people read some of these studies and read our summaries of their findings, um, it'll prompt them to do the same. I'm really pleased with how Bradley mentions wanting the book to help prompt discussion and being aimed at those who are time poor but want to engage with the research because that's exactly what From Page to Practice is all about. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next, we hear from Amy, who is contributing her thoughts all the way from the USA. My name is Amy Bowman Pollitt, and I am an assistive technology teacher specialist for Frederick County Public Schools in Maryland. Um, I'm about 23 years uh, with working with the county. The first 10 years I spent as a classroom teacher on the elementary level. However, I've also taught um, at the college level at Mount St. Mary's University. And um, after 10 years in the classroom, I moved up to a teacher specialist for instructional technology. And now I'm currently um, an AT specialist. Um, so about a year ago, we started working um, in Frederick County Public Schools with the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning. And <clears throat> we did a book study on the book NeuroTeach, which was written by two different uh, teachers at um, the school at St. Anthony's, which is uh, part of the Center of Transformative Teaching and Learning. So the authors, Glenn Whitman and Ian Kelleher, um, have a whole book all about mind-brain education and the study of how the brain 
the science behind how the brain learns. So this was our focus in Frederick County for three years, or the, for, for the past two years. Um, after we did the book study on NeuroTeach, our second book that we received was The Science of Learning. And what we liked about that is we have research-informed strategies that really um, target mind-brain education and the science behind how the brain learns. And what we found with this was that there are lots of research studies that actually validate the good things that we are currently doing and give us new ideas on how we should be approaching things in the classroom. Um, now, in my position, I work directly with teachers to help coach them and uh, give them ideas on how they can better their practice. So some of the things that we targeted in were specifically on uh, memory. So for example, the study number 66, um, the one that talks about the forgetting curve, um, that was interesting to us because although we know that you know, individuals forget information that they retain over time. I don't think we realized how much. Like uh, the study indicated 33, only 33% of information retained during classroom lecture um, <clears throat> after one day and how it continues to decrease over time. So how we took that study and applied it in our um, practice is that <clears throat> we now um, tell teachers that the most important things that they should do, um, the most important things that we tell teachers that the first and last things that students hear during a class period is what they tend to remember the most. So because of this, we no longer tell teachers, hey, have review homework at the beginning of class. It's a waste of time. So. We want to maximize the first moments we have with the class in front of us because they're going to remember the first things more than what comes in the middle of the lecture. So we're starting to experiment with what if we review homework, say, in the middle of class when their recall is at their lowest point. Um, it helps break up the content of new information, goes back to reviewing, which goes into some of the other studies that we've read about in the book. For example, study number four, the um, study about spacing learning and interleaving the material, it goes right into that. We want to start experimenting more too with coming back to the same material um, time and time again, because since the brain does forget over time, uh, research um, is informing us that the more we come back to it, the better chances we have to remember that and encode it into our long-term memory. Um, and that also talks about, too, how do we get students to remember and have appropriate retrieval practices when they're studying? Because it's more than just the teacher revisiting the material, um, but it's also appropriate study strategies for the student. So study number 23 in the book, which talked about retrieval practices, and um, this was something that uh, Glenn and Ian talked a lot about in their mind-brain education book as well, because <clears throat> they said flashcards are not being used appropriately. Instead of just reading passively a flashcard where you read the word on the front and read the definition on the back, we really should be looking at things such as um, 
writing down a topic, for example, the water cycle, and having students write down everything that they recall about that topic. So it's more of an active retrieval process where they're writing down the information, and then they can go back and check against the facts on the flashcard to see how much of that they, they, that they um, got correct. So it becomes more active. Also, study number 41, which is talking about using pictures and words to study more effectively, uh, this is something that we're starting to look at, um, is how to tell students about using dual co coding, having words and pictures uh, when they're taking notes, and how to do that. We don't assume that they know how to do that. We actually have to model that in the classroom. So for example, we want to have words that describe a visual if there is, if it doesn't have an actual description. And we want to be able to use graphics, um, no matter how simple or how poorly <laughs> you draw, any kind of graphic that's associated to capture the core essence of the text that you're trying to recall is helpful. Um, and allowing teachers to model this process for students. We're starting to have the teachers tell the students why using pictures and words and the science behind how the brain learns because students are more receptive to that information if they know why we're doing things the way we're doing than just here's just another strategy. Um, that's something that we learned too about in our mind brain education studies is that students with their executive functioning skills, we cannot assume that they um, know these things, but in actuality, what mind brain education tells us is that the brain's not fully formed until the 20s, which means executive functioning skills are not fully formed until their 20s. So believe it or not, students still need explicit um, instruction um, on how to do anything as it relates to executive functioning. So we need to not assume when kids get to middle school and high school that they know how to study appropriately, that they know how to organize their notes, that they know how to plan for tests and so on. So this is something that we're uh, weaving into our teaching with our students. So why should, why should other educators read the science of learning? Well, first of all, it validates the good teaching that we're already doing. So it gives us the researched informed um, information that we can use to justify why we're, we do what we do on a daily basis if we're questioned. Also, it's giving us new ideas and small, easy to implement in the classroom to help get our students to be more successful. Um, and finally, it's giving us the language um, to help explain to kids why we teach the way we teach and how and why they should study the way they study. Um, Kids seem to be more receptive when they understand the why of, okay, this, there's a reason why I'm going to draw a picture with this. There's a reason why I don't want to cram study all my notes in the night before a test, um, you know, because this is how my brain will do better if, it, if I come back to it every night for just a few minutes. Once they understand how their brain works, then it makes sense to them instead of us just, it's just something that the teacher told them to do. So um, we really did enjoy the book. We found it easy to read and digest. It was colorful in an infographic type of way. Um, and it makes research more accessible to educators. Um, and when it's more accessible and easy to digest, they're more apt to, um, to read through it and then apply it to their practice. It's really great to hear how Amy and her colleagues have been applying their reading of this book and also the other recommendation that she slipped in there for us. 
What's also great is that Amy mentioned Study 41, which links really well to the next episode of From Page to Practice on dual coding with teachers by Oliver Caviglioli. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Now we're hearing from a returning contributor who first appeared on the Chartered College of Teaching Impact Journal special, and that's Henry Saunston. Henry talks about how he and his school have applied the book on a whole school level, which is really interesting. And his contribution is followed by Margarita, who talks about how she's used the book with staff and students. I have been a subscriber to Inner Drive's website and blog for quite a while now and have recently developed a much keener interest in, as they put it, the science of learning, uh, an increase recently in awareness both of teachers and of students of their own cognitive architecture, I think is a really, really positive move. Um, The book itself uh, contains, of course, those 77 key ideas based around areas such as memory, teacher attitude, metacognition and thinking biases, which is something I think that uh, a lot of staff perhaps need to be more aware of. How do students actually learn? How can we most effectively get information into and out of our minds? Um, I feel there is a need for a shared language uh, and understanding around cognitive science. Uh, that idea that culture is what happens when no one is watching. Uh, ultimately, we want people to realise that um, uh, perhaps when delivering a strategy or being asked to do something, it's not just about having to do it because everyone else is doing it. It's doing it and understanding it because it's the right thing to be doing. And um, Bush and Watson, uh, through the book, but also their work that they've been doing for a few years now, really helps channel that idea that the research and the evidence shows us what are best bets, what is going to perhaps help optimise that learning opportunity in the classroom, optimise curriculum time, and promote good quality study strategies for all. Um, My approach when designing a scheme of work um, was that we needed students and teachers in particular to be aware of their cognitive architecture and therefore maximise the efficiency of their study and their retention and retrieval of material, Um, as well as, which also is cited in the book, developing that metacognitive ability and allowing students to become more self-regulated. One of the key issues when designing a scheme of work which I have done for year 10 is that those delivering the information also need to have an understanding of it. Uh, It's very easy to present a a set of ideas around an interleaving strategy or how to use space practice or how to develop retrieval techniques but if the staff themselves aren't educated in an understanding of how the mind works and how the memory works and how material is taken into the working memory and uh, transferred to the long-term memory, retrieving that, forgetting that material, um, an understanding of simple things like the testing effect and how to uh, eradicate those thinking biases that uh, Bush and Watson refer to in the text. My key aim was to ensure that I had, and the teachers delivering the material, which I myself will be one, have an empathy with that end user. Um, any resource designed for any purpose at all needs that. And in this case, the end users are the students who are ultimately not going to have someone watching over their shoulder when they revise for their material uh, towards their GCSE examinations. We can give them as much guidance as possible, but the more information we can provide them with and the greater understanding we can give them of their 
own metacognitive process, of their own cognitive architecture, of their own way that they learn, they can then begin to develop an understanding of what works best for them. Simple myths to dispel, like the idea that listening to music uh, helps them concentrate or revising with a friend um, makes it easier. Uh, these aren't true get rid of the phone, put it away remove the distraction, listen to music if you have to but make sure there's no lyrics in it Um, I've also within the scheme of work tried to help them understand how to design a successfully interleaved um, curriculum of study, something that we can help them do, how to test themselves on a regular basis how to use retrieval effectively and also to essentially dispel a lot of those myths that surround teaching and teachers Uh, to ensure that we are giving students the greatest possible chance to achieve. The purpose of the scheme of work is one hour a week delivered by teachers to year 10s as they approach their, uh, initially their PPEs, their mock examinations, but then to start that process of revision for GCSE examinations early, allow that spacing, allow time for material to be ingested, digested, retrieved, um, avoid using the word regurgitated there, to ensure that the process of revising takes longer than just the six weeks leading up to their first examination. From a curriculum design perspective, I think that is essential. I feel that all subjects where humanly possible need to have completed all their teaching of their content by Christmas in year 11. So they've then allowed plenty of time for the testing on that, the retrieval of that information, identifying the misconceptions and addressing those. And also, hopefully, promoting, as I said, stated at the start, that culture of cognitive understanding, that culture of awareness around the science of learning. Um, the book itself, I'm sure, is absolutely fascinating as a full read. I haven't read it completely myself, uh, but I've used an awful lot of the resource, uh, resources and ideas from the website. Um, I'd recommend anyone to dig in and dig out of those particular areas, in particular when it comes to revision strategies for those students in Key Stage 4. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I'm Margarita Davies and I've been head of the department of MFL for the last five years. Um, I've been teaching in different countries for the last 20 and uh, I have to say that despite the experience... This book, The Science of Learning, has helped me to reshape my practice and um, be, being conscious of what I plan and what I teach, not only in my MFL lessons, but also in my PSHE and tutor time discussions. Um, my takeaways of this book um, are um, it's very short chapters. They go three, four bullet points. They go straight to the point. There are some classroom implications and as well there is extra research that is mentioned. So that doesn't actually offers one point of view, but it offers the possibility for teachers to expand the reaches of every single one of the points that they create. Um, as well, the chapters are so short that um, it fits with my busy schedule. Um, it's quick to read, easy to understand. There are examples, there are samples, and obviously, as I said before, implications for the classroom, which can be applied in every single subject. Um, and as well, something that I found, um, because obviously, reading from one night to another, I wasn't be able to recall absolutely every single one of the points that I wanted to achieve with the kids, with the students. Uh, so what I did, I took the book to the classroom, 
And um, even in my lesson or in my PSHG or in my tutor time, I just used to take the book out and I said, we're going to read this one today. Um, and I used to hear comments like, oh, here we go, Miss, we're going to read another one of their researches. But I knew exactly, stretch away, that they were going to be listening, uh, they were engaging, and we had between 10 to 20 minutes discussion about it. And every so often, uh, it was very interesting how the kids um, were engaging and saying, oh, Miss, today I slept eight hours. Oh, oh Miss, today I ate this for breakfast. Um I mentioned those two eating breakfast and sleeping because I read chapters 29, 20, 34, 35 and 40, which is related to the sleep, um, sleep and phones, reading out loud and eating breakfast. Um, I chose those four um, mainly because my school at the moment is, is in a deprived area and many of our students come to school without having breakfast and uh, probably with very little sleep which um, we have found, obviously, that that um, interferes with concentration and uh, engagement. Now, something that I found very useful was giving them the book to read, them for them to read out loud. Um, it was more powerful, um, especially because it doesn't come from me, it comes from research. They like the fact that I said, look, I believe in this because other people have said this. It has been researches about it. Um, and you can see this throughout the whole book in this in the science of learning um, I do believe that every single teacher should be reading it independently of the subject especially because it opens the landscape of many possibilities to talk in the classroom and make it relevant to your subject the most powerful takeaway from this book was that I managed to improve the CPD in our faculty meetings um, the chapters are so short as I said before and because of that, it was just allowing us to discuss certain issues around the classroom in 10 and 15 minutes and move on to the next item of the agenda. And all teachers have said that um, they helped them to understand much more how kids were seeing the subjects and were seeing how we were dealing with the practice in our classrooms. Um, they commented as well that... It helped them to understand the research around certain issues and how to deal with it. So we were having these discussions not only in PSHE and Tutu Chime, but as well in CPD, um, which I found extremely useful as a head of department. Um, what I'm trying to look forward to this is just to how I'm going to apply this as a subject leader, as a lead practitioner of MFL uh, in my next school, which I'm starting in January. I will have more reflections to do, obviously it's a different context, um, but I'm sure I'm going to be able to apply it in a different way. As I said, it's open to own interpretation with very solid samples and examples. Um, and I will just recommend it just for you to have it a go. Thank you for listening. Following on from those really interesting contributions, I'm starting to wonder how I could be using these studies as discussions with my form group and even help to get some student buy-in from some of my teaching groups um, for some of my teaching methods or choices of homework. The penultimate contribution to today's episode comes from Natasha, who was actually the one to suggest featuring this book, so thanks very much to her. Hi there, I'm Natasha Taylor and I'm a science teacher. I'm currently in my third year of teaching after completing the Teach First programme. This September I moved to schools and I'm currently working at a brand new school in West London called Boulder Academy. You can find me on Twitter at NTA Science. 
Currently at Boulder, we just have two year groups, year seven and year eight, and it started last year with just year seven. Over the next six years, we will grow and each year a new cohort will join us and we will eventually go all the way up to year 13. Working in a brand new school gives you such a fantastic opportunity to trial new learning ideas within the classroom, to try new teaching techniques and especially to draw upon research such as the 77 studies that exist within the science of learning and apply them to your classroom practice. That's what led me interested to read The Science of Learning, as well as what led me interested in this podcast, From Page to Practice. We were also super lucky, because in early September this year, Bradley Bush came to visit Boulder Academy and ran a CPD training workshop with our school, and it formed the focus of a school-wide initiative to incorporate his studies into our practice. Now, The Science of Learning is a unique book and Inner Drive have selected 77 important and influential studies on the science of learning and translated them into a simple-to-read and easy-to-digest format, which was supported in his workshop as well. However, today I'm going to particularly focus on um, on the study one in the book, which is memory, and also draw upon study um, 23 of retrieval practice. So the idea of memory really um, interested me because it led me to think back to my year 11 students from last year at my previous school. And I remember them coming to me in their year 11 year and showing me all of their hard work and their notes that they'd done for their revision, copying out these notes and highlighting the revision guide and highlighting the textbook and um, copying out their class workbooks, saying, Miss, look at all this hard work I've done to revise. However, when it came to the exam, they really struggled to apply that knowledge, that information to the exam paper. These revision techniques which students are really drawn to and as the book refers to as the weapon of choice, um, research clearly shows fail to lead to long-term learning. So it led me to question and the science department at Boulder to question how do we move away from these ineffective techniques and embed long-term learning and memory strategies into the classroom from year seven and then how can this classroom practice then be applied to home learning as well. So how at Boulder do we apply retrieval practice and memory strategies into the classroom? So firstly, every single lesson starts with a quizit, or a starter as you might call it. And this quizit links back to two different um, areas. The first area links back to something from the last cycle, the previous learning cycle that we did, or the previous year, Um, some knowledge that in some cases, applies to the learning of that lesson, but it is something that they've previously learned that the students have to draw upon and um, generate an answer to a question on that topic. The second part of the quizit links to yesterday's learning and drawing upon the key learning points from yesterday that will be built upon in today's lesson. And the students have um, around five minutes to complete both tasks when they enter the classroom. These are low stakes. There is no stress level on the student and the stress levels are not raised, allowing them and there are no formal assessment in the quizits. It's a low stakes opportunity for them to 
um, form form an answer to a question and to practice um, retrieving that knowledge which they've previously learned and apply it into a context um, in today's at the start of today's lesson. And the students love it. They come in. There's the same routine every day. They know what's expected of them, but also. When they generate an answer from something that they learned a couple of months ago, you can see a great sense of satisfaction in their faces. They feel a sense of achievement. And when it comes to um, testing them on that knowledge again in a formal setting, they have um, a greater understanding of it as well. The second part of, um, of memory strategies that we're incorporating is revisiting material um, many times and a sense of interleaving. So simply we interleave throughout our four cycles throughout the year, which are made up of six lessons of biology, six lessons of chemistry and six lessons of physics. So this allows the students to um, develop um, knowledge and skills within those three different disciplines, um, as well as um, as well as have short bursts of new knowledge, which we then revisit um, revisit in different ways. So how do we revisit this? Well, firstly, through our assessment policy. So our assessment policy provides the opportunity for revisiting content. So we have short answer tests, which are 15 questions at the end of a six um, lesson um, cycle. Um, for example, six lessons of biology, we will have a 15 short answer questions, um, mainly multiple choice on that topic. And there will also be embedded in that five questions from a previous topic from a few months ago or last year. Um, this allows the students to be tested on what they've currently been learning whilst also retrieving that knowledge um, and revisiting that material um, from before. Um, similarly, in their end of cycle assessment, where they're assessed on those um, six biology, six chemistry and six physics lessons um, in an Aspire for Excellence. 80% of the questions come from that content. However, 20% again come from previous knowledge that we interleave and revisit. Um, after the Aspire for Excellence assessment, there is known as a fix-it week. And this fix-it week allows the students to um, revisit the content again, led by the teacher through structured learning that is targeted to the class and the individual needs of each pupil. Therefore, we really value this idea that by revisiting the material and by interleaving it um, into, into the lessons, um, the students become more familiar with it and it becomes embedded into their learning. So the retrieval practice and distributed practice demonstrated in our lessons from year seven are two of the techniques which were rated as being very effective for improving long-term memory in the Science of Learning book. And since we've embedded them into our practice, there has definitely been an increased sense of confidence amongst our students when we, um, when we revisit material, as well as um, the opportunity for us as teachers to fix and tackle misconceptions, to be able to identify the areas of need and the areas of weakness amongst your class and revisit those in, pre in, um, in the next lessons. The final topic, that um, area that we are trying to incorporate into our teaching practice is elaborative interrogation, which... Um, studies demonstrate is a technique which is found to be fairly effective. So asking ourselves why is this true 
Or why might this be the case when you are talking to your students? So instead of just accepting an answer and saying yes and moving on, asking that explorative question of why. Getting the students to make connections with previously learnt material and for them to build spider webs of knowledge between new knowledge and old knowledge and find out the reasons why. This is super important that you know your curriculum really well to be able to do this and that you have made clear links and justifications for why your curriculum goes in a certain order. If students are starting to make links between previous learning and current learning, then their overall long-term learning is improved. Similarly, it also increases their confidence and their independence in your subject because they start to bring back, they start to understand where they are moving forward by drawing upon knowledge that they already have and seeing themselves as experts in the field as well, which is fantastic. There are so many more studies that I could talk about today and I strongly recommend um, getting yourselves a copy of The Science of Learning. You could open a new study each day, 77 days, 77 studies, and have a read and be able to see how it's applicable to your um, to your classroom practice. There are studies for parents. There are studies for student behaviour. Study on memory, which, we've, which I've spoken about today. Study on mindset and resilience, metacognition, thinking biases and teacher attitudes and behaviours. Thank you very much. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. I really like how this book has been quite a focus at Natasha's school and I think it goes to show the power of having everyone in a school get behind something to really give it their best shot. Finally, now we hear from Kate. Kate's been a great supporter of the podcast from day one and so I'm really pleased to have her on with us today. Hello, my name's Kate Stockings and I'm Head of Geography at a mixed comprehensive school in Inner London. I've enjoyed listening to all of the Page Practice podcasts and what I particularly like about this podcast is that it's classroom practitioners reflecting on their practice and thinking about how they can improve their day-to-day teaching. I also, of course, love listening to the authors talk more about their books. I was attracted to the Science of Learning book, having seen it on Twitter and having had a glimpse at the layout. I could see that it was very easy to read, presented in digestible double-page spreads which are incredibly informative. The book covers a huge range of topics and provides a reference for each study discussed, should you wish to read more. Lots of the studies were of interest to me and I've used a few in departmental meetings as discussion pieces. I've also used a couple with my Year 8 form. We discussed the studies about sleep and mobile phones before they reflected on their sleeping habits and phone use over the following week or so. To me, this is one of the key strengths of the book. The accessible language means that the studies really can be used across the board. However, here I'm going to talk about one study that I've used within our department to improve our practice. The study is number nine in the book, titled The One About Teacher Expectations. The study about teacher expectations discussed is that of Rosenthal and Jacobson, 1966, the outcomes of which I'm sure many of us have heard of, even if you aren't familiar with the actual study itself. In this study, the researchers randomly selected a group of students and told their teachers that these students were high achievers. When they went back at the end of the school year, they found that these students were those that had made the largest gains in academic performance. 
The researchers concluded that if teachers have high expectations of students, then students will subsequently alter their behaviours as a result. This is called the Pygmalion effect, the phenomenon of people achieving and living up to someone else's high standards. So the authors of this book pose the following question at the end of their explanation of this study, leading the reader to question how to move from page to practice. The question is, how can a teacher tangibly demonstrate their high expectations for their students? They list the following strategies that will be familiar to many of us, such as expecting all students to contribute, having consistently high standards and varying support given to students meaning offering support to those who need it rather than lowering our expectations of what they can achieve. Ensuring consistently high standards across all members of the department is perhaps one of the biggest challenges of middle leadership and how to try and ensure this has been a key issue in the four years for which I've led the geography department. When I moved to my current school 18 months ago, I arrived as head of department alongside two new NQT geography teachers, joining one existing teacher. My priority was to improve the quality of the Key Stage 3 curriculum, significantly improving the quality of geography taught, and thus consistently high expectations of students was going to be key to this. Interestingly in the book, the authors are clear to point out that the findings of the study were strongest with younger students. In other words, it's critically important that expectations are high in Year 7 and throughout Key Stage 3 to ensure later success. Reading this reminded me of the Ofsted report of 2015, titled Key Stage 3, Wasted Years. And it ties in nicely with all the hard work that's been currently going into curriculum, particularly at Key Stage 3 across the country. So how have I taken this study and applied the literature to our lessons? Well, for me, one low workload but high impact way of ensuring consistently high standards across the department is to focus on subject specific vocabulary. For each topic of Key Stage 3, we worked as a team to map out which geographical terms students would be introduced to in that topic. From here, we were able to see when certain ideas and concepts were being first introduced and then subsequently revisited. Crucially, however, through doing this, I was able to see that students were being exposed to the same high expectations with regards to vocabulary and thus with regards to knowledge. For example, whilst we were all teaching the Amazon rainforest, were we all teaching deforestation with the same expectations of knowledge and understanding? Were we all discussing subsistence farming and commercial farming? Were we all discussing indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest alongside the TNCs responsible for large-scale logging? Or were some classes being exposed to such knowledge, while others were using everyday terminology to discuss deforestation? Were lower expectations allowed in some classes compared to others? Having mapped out the vocabulary list for each topic at the start of the year, we are now able to reflect, discuss and tweak in our departmental meetings. We can look at where our expectations of Key Stage 3 students may differ and discuss this in an informed way. Which knowledge would we like our students to be familiar with? When would we like to introduce this knowledge and how best could we do that? Of course, there are multiple ways to try and ensure consistently high expectations across the department, but I've found that vocabulary is a particularly powerful way to do this. Mapping out our key terms was a genuine team effort and facilitated fantastic discussions about what we expected our students to be familiar with in each topic. I've tweeted a lot about this departmental focus on vocabulary using at Kate underscore stockings. So please feel free to have a look there and get in touch if you want to see more examples of what we've done. So to conclude, this study, 
the one about teacher expectations, is just one of the 77 studies discussed in the book. But it's one that I've particularly enjoyed applying from page to practice. I'd recommend this book because it's the sort of book that you can pick up, read a few pages of and immediately think about how you can improve your practice based on what you've read. Exactly what I look for in an education book. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Often at this stage of the podcast, I'll give some kind of reflection. But honestly, today's contributors have done it all for me. What I love most about doing From Page to Practice is the range of voices from different contexts, career stages and even countries it would seem today. Please add your voice to the mix, it's so easy. Just take a look at my schedule, published today, it's the pinned tweet on my profile, at bexn91 on Twitter, and get in touch. I send you all the instructions and it's really simple, I promise. Before I go, just a quick thank you to some fellow podcasters. Firstly, to the Talking Teachers, who played out a plug for this podcast at the start of their latest episode. You should definitely check them out and you can find them by searching The Talking Teachers on Twitter. Also to Phil Naylor of Naylor's Natters, who tweets from at PNA1977 for his support and for a mention in an upcoming episode with Matt Pinkett about um, Boys Don't Try. I'm sure you all need to subscribe to Naylor's Natters, but if you don't, you really should check it out. The next episode of From Page to Practice is going to be on dual coding with teachers by the amazing Oliver Caviglioli. So look out for that one in a fortnight. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash pagepracticepodcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.